Welcome to Streaming Into the Void, where we discuss all the streaming news for the week ending September 16th, 2023. This week, the end is near. Or maybe they just kicked the can down the road? I'm Kim Hollis, fantasy football manager who will cut you after week one if you suck. (laughs) With me are Tim Bridey, content creator and gamer, now available in a new formulation for the flu season. Get your flu shots, folks. It's time. Mm-hmm. Also, David Bumpower, author of Behind the Ride and streaming media analyst, who is older but has a new hat. Happy birthday, my love. Thank you. And it's a Luna Lovegood lion hat, as seen in the movie, and it is spectacular. <laughs> I've been looking for one of those for years. And the podcast is produced and edited by the reason we didn't have an episode last week. What's up, Raul? Hey, guys. What did I miss? <laughs> the strikes are over. Wait, nope. Never mind. Well, where do we even start? Disney had a little spat with one of the biggest cable companies in the country. And in doing so, they basically shook confidence in the entire industry to its core. As we previously reported, Charter didn't want to pay Disney's higher prices for carrying their cable channels. So they pulled Disney's channels from their system, including ABC and ESPN, with fans missing multiple college football games and ESPN's season premiere of Monday Night Football poised to become the next casualty, Disney and Charter finally came to a deal, but it's going to reshape the industry. Charter is dropping a number of Disney's less popular cable channels and will offer its subscribers Disney Plus with ads as part of their cable bundle. But Disney gets higher carriage fees for ESPN, which is what they really wanted. If nothing else, this tells us what the least important channels are for Disney. Charter's Spectrum Cable is dropping from their grid no less than eight channels. Those are Baby TV, Disney Junior, Disney XD, Freeform, FXM, FXX, Nat Geo Wild, and Nat Geo Mundo. Did I make up any of those? You'll never know. Disney executives assure employees of these channels that their jobs are safe, but I can't believe that's true. Regardless of the charter dispute, we know that the studios had too many cable channels. Universal has already started cutting back. Disney can surely consolidate as well. Charter was upset that Disney was basically using their cable system to promote its streaming service and having Charter pay for it to boot. The implosion begins here and rest assured there's plenty more channels that can be axed now that charter's done it you can expect that comcast cox DirecTV, dish network and more will demand the same they've all had recent carriage disputes with disney or are in fact actively in carriage disputes the groundwork has been laid this is the end game for cable Yeah, we've got a lot in play here, but the most interesting part is Charter just finally reached a point where it said enough is enough. And in doing so, it kind of cornered itself would be the way I would describe this in that it had a concession it had to get from Disney. And to do that, it gave up way, 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 way too much in the process. Meanwhile, Disney kind of played this cool and wound up pulling in all the chips on the table, in my opinion. But just when you look at this overall, the big picture here is Comcast next, and that's going to be the negotiation that matters most. And in the process of Disney working out carriage agreements with Charter and Comcast, the three corporations will effectively agree to provide themselves a safe slide down the hill as linear television dies. They're not giving up revenue immediately. And 
And we are talking about, you know, billions of dollars of revenue that's jeopardized for all of them. Charter bluffed and said, we'll give up all that revenue. And then it turned out that was, in fact, a bluff and Disney called them on it. And that's why we got in this situation where Charter is now paying more for ESPN, the thing it said it wasn't going to do. And it's also lost eight different channels. Now, it can say, hey, we did that. It was a win for us. But their subscribers are going, wait a minute. There's never a time we want to watch Freeform as much as when it's October and they do the 31 days of Halloween. We don't have that anymore. What just happened? These are the types of concessions that these carriers are going to have to make because for the last 15 to 20 years, they refused to actually allow customers to pick the channels they wanted in their lineups. And that's how we've gotten in this mess. And this is mistakes from a decade ago, finally coming back to haunt Charter. All right, David. Well, why do you and so many analysts believe Disney won this negotiation? Well, for starters, Charter was basically saying we are ready to totally walk away and Disney didn't believe them. And they're like, sure you are. Yeah, I very much invite you to not air Monday Night Football tonight in New York City with Aaron Rodgers becoming the quarterback for the Jets. Now, we all know that turned out to be a misdirect and a uh, historical thing for the NFL. But focusing on the fact that nobody knew that at the time, Charter had no cards here. So they basically said, all right, fine, what do you want? And Disney said, we're going to raise the rates on ESPN. Everyone involved in this industry knows that live sports is everything that matters at this moment. You're paying more for ESPN, period. And Charter said, well, if we're going to do that, we're going to need concessions. And Disney asked what the concessions are. And Charter's first decision is, we're going to need you to cut the costs on these other ones. And Disney's like, well, no, why don't you just stop airing? Them? That's apparently what happened. Now, it might have been Charter's decision. I'm speculating there. I'm not reporting. I am speculating that it was Disney that said that instead of Charter. Either way, Charter wants to pay the same amount of money no matter what, so that it doesn't have to raise rates for customers. Disney happily agrees to that because ESPN is the rainmaker. That's the way they make most of their revenue on cable today. In the process, both companies agree that they're going to have more money coming from linear television for the next two to three years. However, Charter needs a win, and its win should be in quotation marks because they get Disney to agree to do Disney Plus as a part of one of the tiers on Charter's Spectrum service. And you're thinking to yourself, wow, that's great for Charter Spectrum customers. It is, but it's that much better for Disney because right now there are reports speculating Disney has realized it is not going to make its stated 2024 goals for getting subscribers on its streaming services. That's pretty much a given at this point. Disney's main problem is it cannot get new eyeballs on its service. It is kind of flatlined. They have 3.3 million people subscribed to their very, very popular ad-based Disney Plus service. And I shouldn't say popular, what I should say is lucrative ad service. They just got 10 million more. They just tripled the amount of people that are going to use the ad-based version of Disney Plus, which is the revenue driver. And in addition to that, they have also trained a bunch of people to go ahead and start using Hulu Plus live TV rather than Charter Spectrum. Subscriptions were already up 60% after this spat started. And then Disney cleverly did a $49.99 deal to entice more people to sign up. And that $49.99 deal conveniently lasts three months, which 
which will take them through the college football season, but it will not take them through the end of the NFL season, which is the more important one, which means people will start paying full price for Hulu Plus Live TV rather than staying with Charter. And in the process, they get to watch their freeform stuff. Disney has solved several problems at once, and the master stroke here isn't even being reported that they're going to have these Charter Spectrum customers using ESPN when it becomes the over-the-top flagship service. In other words, on the day when ESPN fully transforms over to being primarily a digital streaming service, those Charter Spectrum subscribers are already onboarded for that future goal in 2025. Disney made a forward-thinking transaction here that is nothing short of a masterstroke, and that is why all the same people who were saying before a deal was struck that Charter had all the leverage are now going, wow, wow, how did Disney do that? This was, in Mortal Kombat terms, a flawless victory. And this negotiation also sets the table for Disney's next negotiation, which is coming up sooner than expected, as Comcast has indicated they want to move ahead more rapidly than expected to resolve the ownership question for Hulu, right? That is correct. They're going to do that in September, which it is September, which means another two weeks or so, they're going to finally start this negotiation. Now, I want to clarify the fact they have not agreed to the financial restriction. It's going to be at least $9.4 billion. Most people believe it'll be in, in excess of $10 billion. The negotiation is going to be what the actual amount is, but they were supposed to wait until January of 2024 to do that. And everyone involved said, nah, let's just go ahead and get that over with. But Roel, I think what you also want to talk about is along the lines of how Disney handles Hulu and how this transaction with Charter also kind of sets the table for the Comcast negotiations, right? At the bare minimum, this has proven the value of Hulu to Disney because the Hulu Plus Live was a major factor in the negotiations with Charter. Disney simply were telling people, if you're not finding what you want on Charter, you could just sign up for Hulu Plus Live. Suddenly, Hulu as a streaming service has that much more value to Disney. And of course, Comcast is a cable provider and they have to negotiate carriage fees with Disney. Comcast can come to the table and say, we want the same deal as Charter, but all of that is simply a part of a larger negotiation related to who ends up owning Hulu and how much one partner has to pay the other for that ownership stake. There is a lot of pieces on the negotiation table between Disney and Comcast, and it's not at all clear who's going to end up getting what. There are so many pieces in play here, it's almost comical. I mean, we've even referenced the fact, theoretically, there could be theme park rights that get involved in this. That is not hyperbole. Right now, Comcast holds the rights to Marvel characters east of the Mississippi, which means Disney can't do an Avengers campus at Walt Disney World. I don't think that's going to come into play, but Al Michaels was once traded for Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. So anything is possible once these two parties start negotiating. And uh, I'm excited to see where this leads. I really am. You have the people at Comcast describing Hulu as a kingmaker asset, a one-of-a-kind asset that can absolutely carry itself. It can be, to some people, a Netflix type of property. Now, we don't see it that way. We've discussed many times Hulu has the limitation where it's basically American only. You can fix that down the line. We shouldn't act as if, you know, you can't. But right now, that's the status of the thing. So we're in a wait and see mode on how negotiations proceed here. But at the end of the day, this might actually wrap up by the end of 2023 for a negotiation we didn't even expect to start until January 2024. Or this could stretch indefinitely, which means we'll be talking about it exhaustively on the podcast. Apologies in advance. <laughs> 
But this all may suddenly be moot as a bidding war appears to be breaking out for Disney's ABC and their cable channels, minus ESPN. Both Nexstar and media mogul Byron Allen have expressed interest in buying the channels. Is Nexstar just everyone's patsy? Nexstar bought the CW chiefly because they owned and operated many of the stations that carried the CW. And if the network collapsed, suddenly they'd have no content for their stations. I don't know if Nexstar could get away with owning two networks, but we're far from that phase right now. Meanwhile, Byron Allen just showed up at the meeting and dropped $10 billion on the table. He was jilted when Paramount decided to pull BET off the market. Byron Allen got all his ducks in a row and he wants to buy something. Why not Disney's broadcasting cable assets? This was an absolutely hilarious story to track. There's a company called Bloomberg that has an intelligence branch. And the intelligence branch, basically on Thursday afternoon of this week, which would have been on September 14th, said, we believe these assets are worth $4 billion and Disney should be happy to take them. And Byron Allen just comes in, slams money on the table. $10 billion final offer. That is not going to be the final offer because as Alan himself said, it's going to depend on some factors Disney hasn't even revealed yet. This is not going to be a clean break because Disney still needs ABC. They use this reference all the time of the flywheel. Well, the flywheel relies on the fact that they get the equivalent of free advertising on ABC. There are a lot of moving parts that would have to be worked out here and that's one of the things Nexstar said where they indicated hey, we're going to wait and see how this actually develops. We don't know yet yet, we're waiting for Disney to provide clarification on what they want to do. It is not clear at this point if Disney knows what it wants to do yet, because there is no real playbook to go by here. We've never seen the collapse of linear television before. So we're all kind of left wondering about it. But what does appear likely is Nexstar thought it was going to be the only bidder here. And Byron Allen was like, you chumps, you're just ripping me off already. I'm not going to let you do it with ABC. I love that Byron Allen just keeps hanging out in the in the wings and every once in a while shows up to make some big moves. Who would have thought that years after this guy started his career as a stand-up comic, he'd be one of the most important factors in the fate of the entertainment industry? We really should look at Byron Allen in the same terms that people look at Warren Buffett, at least within the media industry. He figured out a way to monetize television's dead zone in a way where at a time when very few people are watching, they could just divide the revenue equally with the linear network vendor and with Byron Allen's company. And there was so much money people didn't realize. I call it zombie money that was just hiding there. And he was the first one to tap into it and monetize it. The man is a 100 out of 100 intellect. All this chaos, of course, has done nothing to overshadow Hollywood's real crisis, the double strikes by the Writers Guild and the Actors Guilds. If anything, the chaos is feeding on itself. Analysts are making some rather dire predictions for Hollywood as the studios appear to have made no additional overtures to the guilds since stepping in it a few weeks back when they tried to bully the writers into accepting their offer. Instead, the studios have started suspending deals with many of their top producers. On the one hand, this is inevitable. You can't keep paying producers if they can't produce anything. And by suspending instead of canceling the deals, it basically extends their contracts after work resumes. But the the cynical would suggest that the studios are doing this 
And it started simultaneously across multiple studios last week because they were hoping that the producers, many of which are writers, showrunners, would then put pressure on the Writers Guild to accept an offer. Instead, many of the producers then announced that they'd be starting funds to help out out of work writers and actors. Another ploy that backfired for the producers or are we reading too much into this? There's something genuinely macabre about the fact that one of the unstated actually, I should say stated goals here, is to just take advantage of people once they're so broke that they may not be able to pay for their houses. That is what's in play here. And it's fascinating watching the pushback and the unexpected help that is preventing that from happening. It is painfully aware to anyone watching from the outside that studio executives badly miscalculated how much support the striking performers would have financially and thereby be able to sustain this for an extended period of time. We are watching some crazy stories develop. Agents cannot help themselves. They keep trying to manipulate their clients in a way that benefits agents and agents only. And yet we are seeing both striking guilds continue to show strength and unity in a remarkable situation. And we have reached the point now where executives just need to shut up and take whatever deals on the table. Will they do that? No, because they continue to miscalculate how their standing is in this negotiation. Everyone says they want to get back to work, but of course, the writers and actors would say they'd want to get back to work at a livable wage. Meanwhile, many daytime talk shows aren't waiting, announcing that they're going back into production, even though their writers are members of the writers. Skill. They'll proceed. <laughs> They'll proceed, they claim, without writers, but you really can't have one of these shows without writers. So, what's likely to happen is that the hosts, the producers, they'll do all the writing, essentially scabbing. It's, it really is. It's a bad look. And I hope many of the hosts of these daytime panel shows, like The Talk and The View, choose not to return. F- you, Drew Barrymore. You know, we all knew Bill Maher sucked, but I did not see the Drew Barrymore heel turn coming. I mean, seriously, she has found a way to make the cast of that 70s show not look that bad, except for the one one who's going to jail. Oh, yeah. But hey, you know who's making out like a bandit during the strike? Uh, Byron Allen? Uh, (laughs) Reality show hosts? Oh, oh no, you you don't mean. That's right. F***ing Zaslav. No! While Waterboro's Discovery has warned that the strike could result in a half a billion dollar loss for the studio in 2023, their free cash flow is freer than ever, and the more cash flow the studio has, the higher the bonuses are for Zaslav and his cronies. It's almost like Zaslav knew there was going to be a strike when he rearranged his compensation package back in March and has intentionally been stalling for a resolution. But no, he's not that sinister, right? Somebody throw some holy water on that idiot. (laughs) You know who is sinister? Warner Brothers Discovery's CFO, Gunnar Wiedenfels, who, incidentally, gets a bonus for the studio's free cash flow. Wiedensfeld this week put a nail in the coffin of streaming when he said, the whole idea of warehousing content on Max, a streaming platform, in retrospect, is incomprehensible. He adds that an enormously valuable amount of quality content has been given away well below fair market value. Oh, f*** him. (laughs) Except, of course, that has always been the promise of streaming. You pay for the streaming of new stuff and old stuff, quality stuff and bad stuff. If you're just going to license out your quality stuff to someone else, why am I paying you? 
That's right, folks. We're not even halfway done with the podcast yet, and I've already dropped two F-bombs. That's how badly this is going. Look, he's saying things provocatively, and this is pretty much how Max's new playbook works. They try and normalize something so that when they do a lesser version of it, it doesn't seem quite as reprehensible. That is a disgusting tactic, but it's the one that David Zaslav and his cronies employ. Here we are with this nonsense. Now, realistically, Raul has touched on the crippling logic flaw with this. However, However, we've already seen that Max doesn't seem to care about its own products, thus the dropping of the name HBO. This is probably a real thing that's going to happen. They are going to start trying to monetize some of their best content by licensing it elsewhere and thereby reducing the value of their streaming service. And it feels like we're pretty much at the moment right now where five years from now when people are writing the what went wrong articles, they lead with this particular story. Yeah, Warner Brothers Discovery is trying hard to make Max a destination, but they're constantly self-sabotaging. There's been rumblings that Max will begin offering some sports later this year. They have the NBA, they have the NHL through TNT and TBS, but that's only a tease as apparently in 2024, they'll start charging an additional fee on top of Max if you want to watch sports. At least that's the rumor. Of course, they've also been removing content, yet they've made a deal to show some AMC Network shows shows like Interview with a Vampire and Fear the Walking Dead. This is presumably in line with Zaslav's vision of a single streaming platform to replace cable. But I don't see how he's the guy to make that happen, especially when Netflix basically already does that. And you can't blame AMC Networks for taking WBD's money. They've also recently signed a deal to bring Interview with a Vampire to the BBC in the UK. AMC Networks needs cash. They'll sell to anyone. Yeah, what we're seeing right now is the smaller fish are starving. They'll take any type of breadcrumbs they can possibly get. The bigger fish, meanwhile, aren't doing any better. They're just hiding it slightly better, I guess slightly. I mean, we know that Max is taking on water. I mean, the free cash flow thing, that is pretty much like saying, hey, I'm able to make minimum payments on my credit card bills. Sure, but the interest is adding up. In two years, when you have nowhere near enough content, you're going to feel it then. Of course, their idea is to sell by that point, so they won't fill it anyway. That's where we're at with a lot of this, where it's a shell game and everyone's always thinking, well, it'll be someone else's problem later. And that's just exhausting to watch from the outside side because you can see the mistakes and you can see the lack of accountability. And that's really when you just get out of the business class basis of this, the lack of accountability is what's frustrating above all else. Zaslav's in it for himself and nothing else matters. And he has now hired and trained executives who are doing the company the same way, where we're going to look back and we're going to go, oh my goodness, how did they wreck this so completely? That's where we're at with it. And I will say the live sports thing... They've been promising it for what, 18 months now, and we're finally to a point where it's going to happen. But for it to happen, they're going to have to come up with a new revenue model. We're not going to be that far away from HBO Max costing $25 a month, and that's going to cause churn. So it's just a mess all the way around. Were you guys just waiting for me to go on vacation? It was not the best time for you to leave. Let's just say it like that. We're glad you had fun. (laughs) (laughs) The only other thing that could have happened was the strikes could have ended, but that's about it. (laughs) So, Tim, I guess we've got two weeks of ratings to review. 
Oh, do we ever. Yes, we are first looking at the Nielsen streaming ratings for Monday, August 7th to Sunday, August 13th, 2023. Uh, Netflix's The Lincoln Lawyer is, of course, the top original series for this week, a bit over 1.4 billion minutes viewed for 20 episodes, as it was the first full week of availability for the second half of the second season, which arrived August 3rd. Uh, of course, I think we mentioned it, but Netflix, drunk with power, even in the face of the strike, went ahead and announced it would be renewed for a third season. Uh, new and second is Painkiller, the Netflix series I certainly heard many people talk about, including my parents, I believe. Uh, the series dropped on August 10th, comes in with just under a billion, 990 million minutes for six episodes. Uh, this is based on an article about the Sackler family, you know, the family behind Oxycontin, essentially, by uh, Patrick Radden Keefe, who turned it into a full book, Empire of Pain, which I started and need to go back to. Uh, and we also like him because he's the wind to change guy. Yeah, you'd think Hulu would be upset that Painkiller is getting all the press now because uh, they had their series Dope, Dope Sick, but, yeah. but then Dope Sick got a lot of awards praise, so it's not like it got overlooked. Oh, yeah. I know people who definitely saw both. I haven't heard them compare, but they they watched that. And now that they watched you are watching this. I have heard that Dope Sick is the superior product, but I have not seen either one. And now you got me wondering how Winds of Change hasn't actually been a show yet. Right. I'm actually surprised that didn't say turn into like uh, a book or anything else either. And third, we welcome back Only Murders in the Building as the first two episodes of its third season arrived on Hulu on August 8th and it comes in with 719 million minutes for 22 total episodes. Uh, it'll be weekly from here and also 10 episodes total like the first two seasons. And I think I speak for all of us when I say, yay. I can't believe what they did to that nice young Paul Rudd. <laughs> <laughs> i do need to start this i think it's running through october but yeah i have i have not seen any of it yet waiting for more episodes to drop and to find the time uh, sweet magnolias from netflix is fourth 531 million minutes for 30 episodes and um, prime videos the summer i turned pretty is fifth with 457 million minutes for 14 episodes uh that one's also weekly and it's still a re really surprising hit on prime to me actually gabby's dollhouse which i think is up to 12 or 13 seasons from how often we talk about it on what's new and streaming returns in six with 57 total episodes and 436 million minutes uh it's actually eight seasons so season eight for a show that's only existed since 2021. But I guess this is like the originals version of Cocomelon or Bluey, I guess. Kids are just watching the heck out of these episodes over and over again. Yeah, it's probably just a very small handful of episodes every season. Yeah, each season is like six or seven episodes or something like that. The Witcher is seven, 24 episodes, 421 million minutes, while Netflix's Untold series returns in eighth with 418 million minutes. Uh, this is Netflix's sports documentary series, similar to ESPN's old 30 for 30, which Netflix is releasing in seasons. But I think people are drawn to more specific episodes and topics rather than others, such as when we saw it last season, it was the Manti Teo episode that really drove it onto the ratings chart and the others didn't really move the needle. This season led off with an episode on Jake Paul, which surprisingly didn't do much. Uh, but the second was on Johnny Football, the failed NFL career of Johnny Manziel, and that premiered on August 8th. So I think this is the one people checked out, and that's why it's here. Originals wraps up with Futurama, now on Hulu, 363 million minutes, 438 episodes. Glad that's sticking around. Uh, and Star Trek Strange New Worlds from Paramount Plus in 10th, 304 million minutes for 20 episodes. And that's its second season finale, which arrived on the service on August 10th. And it'll also be on CBS this fall because they've got nothing else. Those awful, awful Gorn. <laughs> Seriously, aside, but watching football on Paramount Plus, that reality show that they just get advertising on every single break, I'm like, oh God, these networks are doomed if there's no content in the fall. Was it Buddy Games? Yes. Oh God. Over and over every, and over again. Every break. Yes. Yes. It's actually based on a movie that starred and was produced by Josh Duhamel, who is now hosting the reality yes. show. <laughs> 
All right. Uh, movies for this week is led by Heart of Stone, the movie that just sounds like it was written and titled by an AI. But an impressive 966 million minutes for the Gal Gadot action thriller, which arrived on August 11th. Uh, that's a good start, but it was reviewed pretty poorly. I'd have expected a drop for the week two. And yeah, we'll put a pin in that for a minute. Uh, second is Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, dropping to 811 million minutes, about half of what it started with last time. And I'm never really quite sure how to read into that for the Disney Plus movies. Having watched their trending for a while now, I think it's as simple as Disney does an excellent job of identifying when content will be available on the service and then making sure with the giant tiles that people are aware you can watch this now. And so it doesn't seem to have the hesitation factor that we sometimes see with other services. People know when they watch on day one, which means it is kind of the equivalent of what we used to call the box office single weekend phenomenon, where a title did just phenomenally well once and only once. That seems to be translating with Disney+. Plus. All right, yeah, we'll see how long it hangs around as it slides down the chart. The Super Mario Brothers movie was also new to the chart uh, last time we did this. It comes in with 598 million minutes viewed on Peacock, which is still pretty impressive because, well, it's Peacock. Despicable Me 2 is here because it came back to Netflix on August 1st, so why the hell not? It's 443 million minutes in fourth. Two other movies we've seen previously... Uh, Fatal in fifth, 316 million minutes, and the 2023 remake of River Wild, 300 million minutes in six. All of those again on Netflix. Rio 2 is also here, amusingly credited to Disney Plus, Hulu, and Prime Video, which was good enough for 265 million minutes combined. That one you got me on. That does make me wonder when we add the Hulu pal to Disney Plus, will it credit all of its titles as Disney Plus and Hulu, do you think? Yeah, I assume it should. If content's on both services, but yeah, because I, I did I did note that's interesting that it's technically the same service being Disney Plus and Hulu. Rio is one of those franchises that has never made sense, even when we were talking about it in terms of box office. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> My sister just absolutely loves it. And it is one of the most visually beautiful animated films ever made. Both films in the franchise, I would say that about. So I guess I'm not really that stunned. It's just weird. You'd think there'd be, you know, more demand for other things. But it's scary if they add something else to the Encanto, Moana, Frozen trifecta that they have on the streaming services. Yeah. And this is not even like remotely recent either. This is 2014 for Rio, Rio 2. So yeah, you got me on this one. Transformers Rise of the Beast, 253 million minutes in eighth. And ninth is a movie from 2012 called Safe. I have no information on if this actually came back to Netflix recently, but I can tell you the reason it's here, and that's because it stars Jason Statham. His movies always seem to make reappearances on the movie's chart for some reason. <laughs> that guy's got to have some dirt on some executive <laughs> at Netflix. <laughs> this is legitimately one of his best films, so there's that. Yeah, this was a theatrical release, and I recall it doing okay for him, yeah. And finally, 10th goes to Fast Five with 218 million minutes. The first five movies of the Fast and Furious franchise all showed up on Netflix on August 1st, which makes complete sense because Fast X also premiered on... Wait, no, I'm, I'm getting a note here. Fast X is on Peacock. I'm sorry. <laughs> <sighs> it's a licensing I nightmare. hate Nielsen ratings. Yeah. Um, Acquired is 10 shows we've seen before, led again by Suits with 3 billion minutes viewed, and that's all I have to say about that chart for this week. If you're just joining us, which would be weird as this is a podcast, we have two weeks of waiting, so now we'll look at Monday, August 13th to Sunday, August 20th, 2023. Painkiller jumps to the top with its first full week of availability. Probably not a surprise there, 1.1 billion minutes. As I said previously, I definitely heard people discussing that they have were, were watching it, so I'm not surprised that it cracked a billion here. Uh, Lincoln Lawyer drops a second, 768 million minutes. And unfortunately, new and third is Depp v. Heard, 704 million minutes 
for the three episode docuseries. I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed in all of you. <laughs> we knew it would be here, but yeah. Only Murders in the Building as an episode, so it takes fourth with 590 million minutes, 23 total episodes. As is the summer, I turned pretty from Prime Video, 403 million minutes for 15 episodes. And that also will get a third season, by the way. Uh, some stuff we've seen before. Gabby's Dollhouse is six, 369 million minutes. Sweet Magnolia is seven, 366 million minutes. And The Witcher in A325 million minutes. So just after a couple weeks, after we had some great variety in the top 10, when we had six different services make the originals list, we're back to mostly Netflix dominance with seven of the top 10 this week. Mm. Uh, we do have two returning shows wrapping up originals. The Upshaws is nine, 321 million minutes, 32 episodes. The sixth episode third season arrived on August 17th. Uh, we saw this hit the chart with the second season. So we were correct in saying we'd see it again when we discussed it on what's new and streaming for that week. And 10th, I'll go to Solar Opposites from Hulu, 309 million minutes for 37 episodes it's fourth season of 11 episodes dropped on august 14th and the removal of creator justin Roiland as voice actor because he's a terrible terrible person thankfully didn't seem to affect its viewership yeah kim and i watched the opening segment of season four having never watched a second of solar opposites before then and i have to say that they handled the change perfectly absolutely perfectly and then we went back and rewatched the opening credits they'd done the first three seasons and it's that much more clever so it might have actually turned us into Solar Opposites fans. <laughs> yeah, this is his other show. He was also the Rick and Morty guy, too. Movies for this week is still led by Heart of Stone, but dropping in its first full week to 777 million minutes. Um, maybe it should have been good. Netflix needs to be spending more money on actual production quality and less on A-list talent. Sure, it had Gal Gadot in it, but it was not a good movie. Like I said, the title and just the plot summary alone, I'm like, okay, this this is movie by numbers. This was an AI writing. This wasn't this. You know, I want to push back on that assertion a little bit, though. I'm not sure that's the case. And my argument here is, would you have watched random action movie on Netflix, even if you heard it was really good? The answer is probably no. But you'll watch the Gal Gadot movie on Netflix, which means the quality isn't as important here. They're just looking to pop the rating. And as long as the financials add up about the same or better, this is the smart play. <sighs> You're right, David. We're all sheep. Yeah. I mean, it worked for Red Notice too, which had her and, you know, Ryan Reynolds on the rock. So whatever. New and second is a theatrical release from earlier this year, The Pope's Exorcist, 580 million minutes. This arrived on Netflix on August 16th. Uh, this was a pretty low-budget horror movie starring Russell Crowe. Only made $20 million domestically, but $76 million worldwide, and that was apparently enough to get it the sequel. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 from Disney Plus is third, 433 million minutes. Super Mario Brothers movie from Peacock is fourth, 385 million minutes. And in fifth, I am disappointed that we have a movie returning to the chart, and that's Cocaine Bear. I am disappointed because it's on Prime Video after it did its time on Peacock being a universal release. We were all hoping it would go to Netflix and suddenly pull in like, I don't know, a billion, two billion when we saw it arrive on Peacock. But nope, here it is on Prime with a mere 307 million minutes. We'll have to wait a year or two for that, which breaks my heart. Make yes. more sense, Peacock releases. Yes, eventually one day this will be on Netflix and <laughs> it'll go from out of nowhere to like, yeah, a billion minutes because Cocaine Bear. Despicable Me 2 returned on last week's ratings. It's still here, 288 million minutes. In seventh, a new animated movie from Netflix, The Monkey King, 205 million minutes, which arrived on August 18th. Meaning there's a chance we see it do better next week with the full week. Uh, Moana is back in eighth, giving us our baseline. You've heard of the Mendoza line in baseball. We have the Moana line in, in the movie's ratings. 200 million minutes or you suck. <laughs> Change approved. 
<laughs> uh, Despicable Me is here as well because along with Despicable Me 2, it came back to Netflix on August 1st, 194 million minutes, and Transformers Rise of the Beast from Paramount Plus wraps up our movies list for this week with a measly 167 million minutes. We have some breaking news on Acquired. Suits is finally under 3 billion minutes, only 2.8 billion this time, so throw that right in the garbage. Have there been 300 articles this week about why Meghan Markle is no longer a draw? <laughs> Although we do have one new show on the acquired chart this week, and that's Ballers, placing fifth with 696 million minutes for 47 episodes. When I saw this, I was like, wait, is this the show I think it is? And yes, it is the rock show that ran from 2015 to 2019 on HBO, and its entire series arrived on Netflix on August 15th and it is still apparently also on Max as well. This is when a streaming into the void story comes full circle. A long time ago we reported on the fact that they were going to start licensing some of the HBO content non-exclusively to Netflix because they knew that Netflix had more money than they did at the time. And this is the output of that and it is the ultimate indictment of Max that they can't market HBO products as well as non-HBO people can, specifically Netflix. Yes, this show has apparently been on Max the whole time, but one week on Netflix, and here it is, almost 700 million minutes viewed. That's all I have for the two weeks ratings. Um, I think the thing to look forward to next week is we're going to get uh, Ahsoka's premiere. So I'm curious to see where, where that lands on the originals. Disney's press releases would have you believe it's one of the most successful shows they've ever had. So I really want to see those specific numbers to see whether they align. Yep, I saw that, and I hope that translates into the Nielsen's. All right, thanks, Tim. This week, it's also the return of our green lights and cancellations. The Israeli thriller Fauda has been renewed for a fifth season. With American productions at a standstill, you can expect that Netflix, that carries the show in the U.S., will be happy with this news. Strike proof. They're just going to keep leaning into international content until they can somehow figure out how to resolve these strikes. And over at Max, this news is several weeks old, but we never had a chance to mention it. The Sex in the City reboot, and just like that, has been renewed for a third season. I wouldn't say we forgot to mention it. <laughs> <laughs> Over at Prime Video, it was announced this week that Donald Glover's new series remaking Mr. and Mrs. Smith has been postponed to 2024. This is surely due to the strike, but hey, given that I thought this project had been canceled, this is really good news. <laughs> Phoebe Waller-Bridge dropped out of the show back in 2021, but I guess Donald Glover had decided to carry on with it. And speaking of Donald Glover, his Lando series at Disney+, Plus, telling the adventures of the suave and swashbuckling Star Wars hero, is being turned into a movie instead. This looks like Disney is finally realizing that there's more money to be made at the movie theater than by putting original content on Disney+. Plus. One of the silliest things that someone at Disney did was decide to release Solo on Memorial Day weekend in 2018, about six months after Last Jedi. So instead of having a Star Wars movie every December for the span of five or six years, they put it out then and it relatively flopped. I mean, as much as you can call a movie that made $400 million a flop. But in hindsight, it's the one that everyone turns out, hey, this one's actually pretty good. And especially everyone was like, wow, Donald Glover, he could totally do a solo Lando Calrissian movie. And several years later, here we are. So I think this may have happened much sooner had they actually put it out in December 2018 rather than May. 
Yeah, there's been a steady drumbeat almost from the start that Kathleen Kennedy has been running Lucasfilm rather poorly. And in the more recent months or years, it looks like a lot more of the guidance has been handed over to Dave Filoni, who used to run the uh, Clone Wars cartoons. You can definitely see his influence in the Star Wars series that are on Disney Plus these days. Ahsoka, of course, was one of the characters he introduced in the Clone Wars. And if you haven't seen those cartoons, you're all probably wondering, who is this Jedi? Why have I never seen her before? It's because she appeared in the cartoons before she ever showed up here. Dave Filoni seems to have a more steady understanding of what Star Wars fans want. Kathleen Kennedy may still be the executive in charge at Lucasfilm, but things may be moving in a more positive direction now for Star Wars fans. And I think the fact that we're getting a Lando movie with Donald Glover is an indication of that. As always, we close out the show with what's been keeping us busy over the last week. And I finally got to see Barbie as it came to video on demand. I just thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was terrific, funny, creative, adventurous, not necessarily what I was expecting, although maybe also what I was expecting based on the fact that it was from Greta Gerwig. It deserves every bit of its hype. And we also wrapped up Harley Quinn, the most recent season, and they have set up some pretty fun and interesting things to come. So I'm excited to see what they do next. Don't mess it up, Zaslav. How about you, Raul? Let me tell you about One Piece on Netflix. I've been... All right. Yes, I binged it during my vacation. This is the live action adaptation of the best selling anime in history. It's the story of Monkey D. Luffy, who sets out to be king of the pirates. The cast is a series of unknown international actors. The narrative is straightforward as Luffy visits different locations and at each location comes across someone with a past that's a variation on the pirates killed my family, so I hate pirates. And they end up joining Luffy's crew of straw hat pirates, ironically. Luffy is goofy and lighthearted, but he also happens to have eaten a devil fruit, which has given him gum gum powers. Basically, he can stretch his body. The whole thing plays out like a cartoon. Luffy wants to be a pirate, and he's pursued by Marines simply for the reason that he calls himself a pirate, and because the Vice Admiral seems to have a particular grudge against the kid. The title refers to the treasure of Gold Roger, the last King of the Pirates, which he buried on the Grand Line, a stretch of land that separates the four oceans. If Luffy can find it, he can declare himself the King of the Pirates. But most of the season is spent in pursuit of a map to the Grand Line. There's no subtlety or even self-awareness here. Everything is exactly as it seems. The good guys win, the bad guys lose, and no one of consequence dies. And yet, despite it all, it was fun. I'm not desperate for a new season. I'm not invested on whether Luffy ever becomes King of the Pirates, but given what I've seen so far, I assume eventually he will. But it definitely kept me entertained while I was watching. Is it fair to compare this to Cowboy Bebop and say One Piece is succeeding where that one failed? I know nothing about them other I mean, I don't I doubt they compare in any other way outside of them being two of the most famous Japanese animes. Yeah, I've sure heard a lot more people watching it than were watching Cowboy Bebop. Mm -hmm. It's challenging because it's clear that One Piece is geared towards a much younger audience. Given the cast of Cowboy Bebop, I suspect they were trying to aim it at least for older teens or young adults. And One Piece is, if nothing else geared very much towards tweens. It is essentially a cartoon with live action actors. So it sounds like it just translates better to live action than Cowboy Bebop would. Uh, yeah. All right. 
All right, Tim, what's been keeping you busy? Uh, I talked about this game when I first played it in the beginning of the year, but I'll bring it up again. Against the Storm is a combination city builder and roguelike. It's roguelike in the sense that the entire menu of buildings and resources are not always available to you on each map, so you can't always use the same formula to bring you to victory each time. Uh, win or lose, each map gives you some experience, which you'll apply to a skill tree to make the next run a little bit easier or allow you to tackle the next difficulty level if you're so inclined. I bring it up again because I hadn't touched it since I initially bought it, but as it's in Steam Early Access, the developers have been relentlessly updating it nearly weekly. So I found some time to give it another chance and they added a lot of more, more features and, and depth to it. And it's as good to even better as it was the first time I played it. Uh, if you like the part of a city builder where your resources are limited and you have to decide how you're going to make the map work for you rather than just be, you know, ha have a giant sprawling map flushed with everything, then I think you'll actually love this game. It goes on sale, usually on the big, the big sales, I think regular price is 30 bucks. It's probably worth it at that price for the amount of hours on the putting into it. But if you see it on sale, uh, I would grab it. Okay. And David, how about you? So we actually uh, watched a lot of things, as Kim kind of referenced. I've seen several more beyond that, but I'd rather talk about something else right now, something new. And that is the fact that we now have YouTube TV's answer to NFL Sunday Ticket. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that Kim and I on last Sunday looked very much like Nelson at an Andy Williams concert. We were just giddy from start to finish. I'm not sure how we could have been happier with the process. The new version of NFL Sunday Ticket features an option that wasn't available with the DirecTV version, and that is four games at once in a multi-camera view. And we had a 65-inch and an 82-inch TV, and um, it was amazing. I mean, it really was. Historically, we actually spend our Sunday afternoons generally eating lunch in sports bars, and I found myself thinking there was no need because you put four games up on an 82-inch TV, and <laughs> you're set. You really are. With the bottomless DVR that comes basic to YouTube TV, we can go back, we can watch any game, we can watch any play. It wasn't seamless. We're still getting used to the technology. And if we ever lose our internet, I am going to be so completely screwed. But Kim, it was damn near perfect, wasn't it? It was fantastic. It was a perfect day in a lot of ways. Like David mentioned, it would be nice if we could choose our games when you've got the four on the screen. Four on the screen is fantastic. I'm actually watching three college games on the screen right now, which is just super cool. They all looked really good, too. The picture was great. So kudos, Google. I have to say you have truly outdone DirecTV's Sunday ticket. I thought they would. I really did. But it only gets better from here, I think. Guys, TVs are measured at the diagonal. So an 82-inch TV with a grid of four means that you've basically got a stack of four 41-inch TVs. That must be amazing. Yeah, Kim and I have a running joke about this. We're not like most couples. This is a real thing that happened. We were kind of shopping online during a pandemic when we moved into our house. So I ordered this TV with not understanding its size. And when it showed up, I actually just didn't even want to get it out of the box. It was too big. Kim put her foot down. She was like, oh, that's our TV. I mean, that's not an exaggeration. It's 100% what happened, isn't it, Kim? It absolutely is. And it's the TV I'm watching right now. It has become her TV because she spent 
spends a lot more time in that room than I do. So it's what she's used to. We have a 65 inch TV up in the bedroom, which is actually what I'm watching right now. And I wish it were a 70 to 75 inch TV. I could use it being a little bit bigger, but that's plenty enough for me. 82 inches historically excessive in every way, in my opinion, given where our couch is located compared to it. It's just too up close for me, but it is absolutely perfect for watching multiple games on a split screen television. Just absolutely perfect. This might be its one true calling. We've already joked we can't wait for March Madness. They did a little bit at March Madness this year, but they're really going to go full-throated in 2024. I'm here for it. I mean, this was an impressive technological experience for us all the way around. It makes you realize just how antiquated DirecTV is and just how little changed in the more than 20 years they actually had the service. And it's been a good week for football on streaming all around, right? I understand Amazon had some success with their Thursday Night Football. Yeah, we had this conversation a year ago. NFL Thursday Night Football on Amazon obviously didn't go well because they only really listed the ratings for the first night and they suggested there were 13 million. And we were a little dubious about that at the time. We nitpicked our way down to, I want to say it was 11.8 or maybe 11.6 million. Amazon sold based on 12 million viewers every Thursday, and we don't think they came anywhere near that. This past Thursday, which was the second game of the season, but the first Amazon broadcast, they claimed 16.6 million viewers, a massive increase from their best week last year. So obviously, live sports is where it is at with streaming, and that explains a lot of what we're discussing today with Max and some of the other stories with Disney and Charter. This is the future, and we're just trying to make a path to it right now. Yeah, I remember the first Thursday Night Football on Amazon Prime Video last year where Amazon pulled out all the stops to get as many eyeballs as possible. If you navigated to Amazon.com on your browser in the corner, there was the football game. If you opened up the store app, Amazon found a way to get you to the football game. They were desperate to get to those numbers and still they only were able to muster that 13 million number, which was very suspect. And the fact that this year without Amazon necessarily doing much to goose those numbers good for Amazon. Yeah, it's one of the things we were talking about earlier. A lot of this is about normalizing behaviors. Last year might have seemed like a failure for Amazon. Not that Amazon cares due to the scale involved here, but it was a failure in terms of what they promised versus what they achieved. This year, much more organically, they almost casually destroyed the numbers from last year. And that is so impressive. And it shows audiences are starting to lean that direction. And that's why the start of the podcast ties directly into what we're saying here. Charter, Comcast, and Disney all know linear television is crumbling and it is basically an Indiana Jones scene at this point. It's the last one out of the temple with the artifact, but they found a way to hold a little more revenue for the next two to three years while they adjust. Amazon has just shown people are ready to watch live sports this way. Thank you for listening to Streaming Into the Void. Please consider subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we welcome your feedback. Remember that we're on social media at Streaming Void and online at streamingvoid.com. If you like what you're hearing, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon at patreon.com slash streamingvoid. Be sure to watch for us again next week. 